Hi squad! Welcome or welcome back to Crime Squad Podcast with me, your host Natasha. It's that time of the week again, an episode drop for you. If you're new here, I release Canadian true crime cases, both solved and unsolved, bi-weekly. Each episode is researched, written, and recorded and edited by yours truly. Today's episode is the last episode in a series called The Devil's Playground about London, Ontario's Elgin Middlesex Detention Centre, also known as EMDC. If you want to listen to the from the beginning, go back to episode 12 for part one of this series. This has been a long journey. I had no idea what I was getting into when I began this series. Getting to know the inmates as much as possible through the means available to me has been an emotional experience. There were many nights where I'd be sitting at my little Chromebook doing my research, where I'd call out to my partner and heatedly discuss the situations that led to a person's death. This series has been rife with violence, drugs, and even potential murders and cover-ups. Who would have thought that in what I consider to be a small-time jail in London, Ontario, there would be so much devastation? I actually had a few family members of the deceased individuals reach out to me via email about the series. I'm so honored to have been able to interact with them, although sad that it was under these circumstances. As you may recall from the last episode of The Devil's Playground, Sean William Turand Brightman, aka Jr., died in custody with less than two weeks of his sentence left. I received an email from his daughter, and after an extremely touching exchange, she shared with me her thoughts, which I will put forward in a bonus episode this week. Death doesn't just affect one person. It leaves behind a trail of victims. Mothers who never see their sons or daughters again. Sisters, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews. Daughters, sons. Everybody has a story, one that was created over years and years of living. Each person leaves an imprint on others, and when a life is tragically taken too soon, the feeling cuts deep. Today's episode will feature Tyler Lancha, Clayton Danny Bissonette, Brandon Bam Bam Marchand, Ronald Jack, and Jamie Briggs. Okay, squad, let's get into today's episode. One of the things that I keep seeing again and again as I do research for these episodes is the lack of guards checking in on inmates at the intervals of time that they're supposed to. Apparently, EMDC guards are supposed to check inmates every 30 minutes. But in so many of these stories, way more time goes by than just 30 minutes. The question is, if guards did as they're supposed to, could lives have been saved? Why aren't the policies in place at the jail being followed? If I had to guess, I'd say that the excuse would be that the guards don't have enough resources to do this. And you could say, well, hire more guards. But a huge part of this, if you've forgotten the numbers, is that EMGC should only house about 150 inmates, and this number is staggering upwards of 400. Of course they don't have the resources. The jail is jam-packed. Something is very wrong. Tyler Lanch's family will probably always wonder if things could have been different for him if guards had followed through with the 30-minute checks. Instead, they're left with a gap in their lives, 
one that can never be filled. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of information on Tyler's childhood or life, but from what I could find, he has family and friends that loved him very much, and he's truly missed. Tyler was involved in a shooting on Marconi Boulevard in London, Ontario in 2020. After an appeal to the public for assistance in locating Tyler and another individual involved in the shooting, they were found and both were arrested. Tyler was charged with aggravated assault, the use of a firearm during commission of an indictable offense, discharge firearm with intent to wound or endanger life, and possession of a loaded uh, or unloaded regulated firearm. But as I've said many times in these episodes, it's important to understand that people aren't inherently violent or bad. Of course, we all know, Squad, there are exceptions to any rule, but judge not, lest ye be judged. Was the crime Tyler committed a terrible crime? Yes. Police said it wasn't considered a random incident, and the individual that was shot recovered in hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. I'm not excusing his behavior at all, but did Tyler deserve a death sentence? If you said yes, we'll have to agree to disagree. Tyler was serving his time at EMDC. I'm not even sure at this point if he had already gone to court for the charges he was facing. As mentioned in previous episodes, as a quick refresh, many of the inmates in custody at the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center are actually awaiting trial and for whatever reason have been denied bail. Knowing how backed up the courts were in 2020 due to the pandemic and the fact that Tyler was at EMDC in 2021, I'm going to make an educated assumption that he was likely not yet convicted of his crime. If someone is listening to this and knows otherwise, or if you have anything you want to say about Tyler Lancia, feel free to contact me and I will make any corrections necessary. It was in late March of 2021 that Tyler's life would be forever altered. On March 20th, Tyler spoke to his mother, Kim. During the conversation, he, compared, he complained about the food they were being given. Details are limited on the death, but according to lawyer Kevin Egan, a name you might recognize from other episodes in this series, Tyler had apparently been sick the Saturday night. He had been throwing up, which prompted a nurse at the jail to tell guards to check on him every 15 minutes instead of the usual 30. Kevin went on to say that inmates provided the detail that Tyler was heard throwing up at around 3.30 a.m. At around 7 a.m. on Sunday, March 21st, Tyler would be found unresponsive in his cell. Guards had not checked on Tyler in 15-minute intervals. Reportedly, a full 90 minutes went by before he was checked on, and this is when he was found unresponsive. Tyler was rushed to hospital. According to Tyler's family, he was in hospital for three hours before they were notified something was wrong. The family rushed to be by his side and were given a hard time by correctional officers who were at the hospital. Kim, Tyler's mother, told lawyer Kevin Egan that correctional staff were unsympathetic and hindered their ability to see Tyler. Tyler, who at the age of 26, was on life support. The next day, March 22nd, Tyler died. The initial investigation conducted at the hospital showed no visible signs of trauma and no signs of the presence of drugs. The death would need to be further investigated, and of course, if determined anything other than natural causes, yet another inquest would be required. I have searched the coroner's inquest files and haven't found anything, but that doesn't mean an inquest hasn't been conducted. 
One thing the doctors did tell the family, however, was that Tyler's blood seemed to have high levels of potassium. According to the National Kidney Foundation, high potassium levels can lead to heart palpitations, shortness of breath, chest pain, nausea, or vomiting. This seems to align with what Tyler was experiencing before he was found unresponsive. What could have caused this? Without medical files, one can only guess. The facts are, Tyler, a decently healthy 26-year-old male, went into EMDC and wound up dead. The 17th inmate to go into EMDC and come out dead since 2009. Tyler's family set up a GoFundMe to try and assist with funeral costs and legal fees. They, like so many other families impacted by the senseless deaths at EMDC, want to push forward change. Inmates should not be dying at this frequency. Reading the condolences on Tyler's obituary, as well as the GoFundMe comments, it's clear that Tyler had an impact on many people's lives. Tyler is described as being the life of the party with a smile that could light up a room. His laugh was contagious, and he loved to laugh. He was also fiercely protective of his family, who meant everything to him. He was a genuine friend, one who will never be forgotten. One who had a positive impact on many lives. He would always try to uplift anyone around him. Tyler's sister, Bree, left a comment that I'll share here. Oh, the memories we share. When I look back on my life, the only thing constantly there was you, my brother, my everything. From babies to adults, you were always the one thing in my life I knew would never change or go away. It was always us, us against the world. I really can't believe this. You were the best brother and uncle. You still are. No one or nothing can take your place in my life. Our bond was like no other. I've always been proud to call you my brother and that will never change. I got you forever, no matter where you are. I can't wait to be with you again. I love you so much, bro, and I'll miss you so much. I'll see you later. Tyler leaves behind an infant son, a young daughter, a stepson, a nephew. He leaves behind his sister and a very large extended family all over the world. Hug your loved ones. Tell them you love them. Tomorrow isn't guaranteed. Rest in paradise, Tyler. Just three days after Tyler Lancia passed away, Algon Middlesex Detention Center would have more blood on its hands. Clayton Danny Bissonette, a 61-year-old man, died on March 24, 2021. The life of Clayton, who went by Danny, was the subject of a London Free Press feature in 2023. It is an extensive look at the life of his family, starting with the matriarch, Mary Ellen Lemure. I recommend you read it if you want to get an inside view of Danny's family life. It's written by Randy Richmond, and I'll include it in my sources for this episode. Honestly, it's shocking to me how many stories of addiction or criminal acts start with one simple thing, drugs. But no matter how many times I report on the same issues, I still feel real empathy and concern for the individuals. Their stories never get tiresome. It just remains a sad truth of the world today.
Trauma often leads to drug use, which often leads to criminal acts. It's the reality. Danny's story begins with the birth of his mother, Mary Ellen, in 1936. Mary Ellen was an indigenous woman who had a wild side to her. She met and married a man named Simon Bissonette, and they had four children in the early 50s. At some point, Mary Ellen leaves Simon and meets a man 23 years her senior named Samuel Armstrong. They have five children together, all but one who were taken as part of the 60s scoop. If you haven't heard of the 60s scoop before, I urge you to do some independent research. In a nutshell, though, this is a super dark side of Canadian history, where an estimated 16,000 Indigenous children were taken from their families, often forcibly removed, to be adopted into white families to try and eradicate Indigenous culture. There's lots of history in Danny's family. Danny was kept by Samuel Armstrong when his mother eventually decided that she wanted to leave. There was a time where she asked if Danny wanted to leave with her, and he said no. He stayed instead with his father and three of his four half-siblings. Two other children, Danny's full siblings, are put into foster care or adopted as part of the 60s scoop. They don't realize they have siblings until years later when they all begin their own research into their lives and their biological family. They find out that most of their siblings and extended family have all been removed from their homes at some points and put into care. As a young boy living a relatively unstable life, Danny makes it to ninth grade in school and then quits to become a bricklayer. He works hard. Danny gets into a bit of trouble with alcohol-related offenses in his mid-30s, but otherwise leads a decent life. He even meets a woman named Tracy, whom he ends up having a long-term relationship with. Unfortunately, their lives would be forever altered in January of 2006. It's a mild day, perfect for taking the Christmas lights down. Danny starts up the ladder he'd set up instead of waiting for Tracy to come hold it stable for him. Tracy had only stepped away to their garage for a moment when she heard the crash and saw Danny come down. They rushed to the hospital where Danny was treated for a shattered heel. He was prescribed a painkiller, Percocet. It's then that his personality begins to change, as noted by Tracy. He can get mean. Although he's not physically abusive... But as some of you may know, words can cut deep, and reportedly Tracy's son was not able to forgive Danny for some of the things that he would say. Danny eventually had a tolerance for the perks and was given the much stronger drug OxyContin, specifically the 80s, which is an 80 milligram dose. Things change. A once-loving Danny becomes a different person. The drugs have their hold, and he vows to get sober, but it doesn't happen. After four years of watching the man she loved turn into someone she could barely recognize, Tracy made the decision to end their relationship. Fast forward to the year 2020. It's February 17th of 2020 when Danny gets into his vehicle to go for a drive. He isn't driving properly. His vehicle veers over the center line, narrowly missing a head-on collision with a police vehicle, actually. He then hits a curb, which repels him into a small ditch and strikes a cement barrier multiple times. Police arrive on scene and try to conduct a sobriety test, but Danny is barely coherent or able to stand on his own two feet. He is transported to the police station where his urine is analyzed. The results indicate he had four prescription drugs in his system. One for alcohol withdrawal symptoms, two for anxiety, depression, and pain, and hydromorphone, which is an opioid painkiller. 
Danny's sentencing takes place on March 18th, 2021, where his charges of driving impaired earn him a 120-day stay in jail. He is 61 years old. He arrives at Elga Middlesex Detention Center on March 18th. He feels okay, if not a little shocked, that he was sentenced to time in jail. After all, he had been charged with the same charges in 2018, and his lawyer had been able to get him a fine instead of jail time. This time, the judge was harsher, requiring Danny to serve time. It's only five days later, on March 23rd, when Danny's cellmate hears him making odd sounds that are a cross between a gurgle and a snore. The very next morning, correction officers find Danny unresponsive. He isn't breathing. They administer naloxone, which is a drug that is supposed to stop overdoses. They attempt CPR until paramedics arrive. Paramedics then transport Danny to the nearest hospital around 8 a.m. Seven minutes later, he is pronounced dead. Five days in custody and Danny would never get to see his loved ones again. Despite being housed in a specialized quarantine unit because the jail was experiencing a lockdown related to the COVID-19 pandemic, Danny was able to obtain drugs within the EMDC. The coroner later determined that Danny's death was multiple drug toxicity. His blood contained cocaine, fentanyl, fluoroprazolam, and xylosine. According to the coroner's report, Danny had suffered a heart attack the day prior due to the cocaine use. And Danny had two and a half times the lethal amount of fentanyl in his system. The last two drugs are often found in fentanyl that is created on the street. Danny's life was not an easy one, and it seems so sad that despite his upbringing, he really did the best he could to be a good person. His former partner, Tracy, believes Danny turned to using drugs to help not just with physical pain, but as he began to use more to numb his emotional pain too. Danny was the 18th victim who died at EMDC. His family, like so many others, wants to see changes. They want the death toll to stop. What will it take to see this institution implement real change? Rest in peace, Danny Bissonette. On December 11, 1988, Brandon Marchant came into the world. According to an article by the London Free Press, he had a rough go of it as he was growing up. He didn't have support within his family in his formative years. But he eventually made his way to London, Ontario, and made a name a home here. He became involved in the local mixed martial arts community and started training to become an MMA fighter, adopting the name Bam Bam. He was well known in the scene as a promising young fighter. His trainer expressed a lot of fondness when talking about how Brandon would help raise funds as part of the gym's charity efforts. Around 2020, Brandon stepped away from training to deal with some personal issues he was facing, according to his trainer. Brandon, like so many of us, seemed easily influenced by the wrong sorts of people. People you call friends, but sometimes they don't have your best interests at heart and encourage bad decisions. Brandon had been struggling for many years with addiction, but he was ready to find a different path. He had been attempting to straighten out his life, even attending church services to promote a different lifestyle. On Canada Day of 2021, Brandon would make a poor decision one that I'm sure he would later regret with everything he had. Brandon, along with two passengers, were involved in a single vehicle collision on Highway 401 near Woodstock. 
According to reported events, at around 4.30 p.m. on Canada Day, a vehicle hit a hydro pole. The two passengers were actually ejected out of the vehicle, and the driver fled on foot. The passengers were transported to hospital with injuries. The driver was later located by police and also transported to hospital with injuries. The driver happened to be Brandon Marchant, who was then charged with the following, according to police, as told to the Lenin Free Press. Possession of property by crime over $5,000, dangerous operation of a vehicle, driving while under suspension, using an altered license, and failure to stop after a collision. After Brandon was treated for his injuries, he was transported to the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center where he would be held until a bail hearing, or if bail was going to be denied, held until trial. Brandon arrived at EMDC on January 2nd, 2021. According to sources within the jail, specifically two inmates who were in the same unit at the jail that Brandon was admitted to, Brandon suffered a horrific assault the night he arrived. And other sources had actually confirmed this to, the, to be the case as well. Allegedly, Brandon had been denied the ability to take a shower, which caused a verbal exchange between him and the correction officers. Brandon then threw a towel at the officers, and in turn, the officers admonished him verbally. But that's when the alleged assault began. Both inmates recall the assault, and in fact, one of them had actually been on a phone call to a friend where he held the phone out so the friend could hear what was going on. Apparently, five correctional officers committed a vicious assault against Brandon. Although Brandon probably could have held his own if it was one officer, five on one is just cruel and uncalled for. One had supposedly been doing a lot of the punching and the others had held him down or delivered separate blows. Inmates heard the screams coming from the cell. One inmate recalls that he heard, quote, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, pleading, and after that, whimpering, end quote. Officers left the cell, leaving Brandon on his own. Overnight, these inmates had differing accounts. One said that he could hear whimpering coming from Brandon's cell and then nothing else. Officers reportedly did not check on Brandon throughout the night, even though, as we've discussed multiple times, they're supposed to check every 30 minutes at minimum. The other inmate reported that Brandon had asked guards for a blanket in the night and was instead told to lay down. This inmate said he heard Brandon groaning in pain throughout most of the night. According to these sources, the next morning, a correctional officer came to check on Brandon He knocked on the cell door and did not receive a response, prompting him to enter the cell. Moments later, he exclaimed, he's not breathing. Paramedics arrived and staff apparently handcuffed Brandon, who appeared limp and lifeless as he was carried away via stretcher. As if to plant a seed of doubt in their potential involvement in Brandon's death, the officers told inmates that Brandon's death was likely an overdose. Obviously, the inmates were extremely disturbed at what they'd seen and heard. One of them actually called his lawyer the next day to report what had happened. The lawyer then contacted Lennon police who visited the jail later that day. Brandon was transported to hospital on July 3rd and family was notified. He was put on life support at that time and had not regained consciousness. Family members visited him in hospital, assuming he had been readmitted because of the injuries he'd sustained in the collision that happened July 1st. They noted, though, that he had swelling on his face, his head, and his ankles. 
Brandon wouldn't end up regaining consciousness. He would be taken off life support on July 6th and would pass away. As with other inmate deaths, the death would be investigated. However, results of an autopsy have never been released. In fact, no further information is available that I could find regarding the outcome of Brandon's unfortunate passing. Brandon is remembered as a rebunctious prankster who is popular with friends and women alike. Most of all, he was remembered for being a great dad and loving his family. He leaves behind countless friends and family members. Brandon would be the 19th person to die at EMDC. He hadn't even been at EMDC for 24 hours. Rest in peace, Brandon. Ronald Jack became an unfortunate milestone for Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. On September 13th, 2022, he became the 20th inmate to die at the jail over a 13-year period. The internet is great for many things, but if there's no information out there, it unfortunately leads to no information at all. I don't have details about Ronald Jack, which is unfortunate because I always try to separate the criminal act from the criminal. However, Ronald Jack's daughter actually reached out to me via email in late 2023. She indicated that she did not have a relationship with Ronald at all and that she'd only just found out he died. From my understanding, she never actually even met him. She sent me a ton of resources, which I was grateful for. So thank you if you're listening. If anyone who is listening to this has any details about Ronald Jack they would like to share, please feel free to email me at crimesquadpodcast at gmail.com or send me a direct message via Facebook or Instagram. I can imagine being his daughter and wanting some kind of closure, maybe even a glimpse of the man he was. So please let me know if you'd be willing to connect with her and I'll check in with her to see if she's okay with that before bridging you together. According to the Lennon Free Press, Ronald Jack, a 59-year-old male, was arrested September 8th of 2022. Allegedly, he had breached a condition of his original release after arrest, specifically that he was not to come in contact with two women. He had been charged with assault in December of 2021, but had been released with conditions. He must have attempted to contact one of the women, and after police involvement, Ronald was arrested again and would be spending time in EMDC as a result of the breach. After serving only five days at EMDC, he was found unresponsive in his cell. And like so many other individuals before him, he was rushed to hospital where he later died. Police and EMDC remained tight-lipped about the situation and cited investigations were pending, but an article published in October of 2022 revealed a witness had come forward with further information. I just want to point out that this article has not been proven, but it has also not been disproven. This witness isn't 100% certain if the individual he witnessed taken away on the night of September 12th is Ronald Jack, but seeing as how official reports were released indicating an inmate was found unresponsive on September 12th around 11.45 p.m. and transported to hospital then died the next day, it's pretty safe to say it was Ronald Jack. The witness account is as follows. After lights out, he was sleeping in his cell, which was the cell right next to whom he believes was Ronald Jack. At some point in the night, both the witness and his sleeping cellmate woke up to yelling and a loud bang. A bang that reportedly sounded like someone being dragged off the top bunk and slamming to the ground. 
The witness reports that the next sounds were that of what clearly sounded like fighting. He claims at one point someone shouted, quote, I'm going to gouge your eyes out and make you eat them, end quote. As if this weren't terrifying enough, guards apparently didn't hear anything, and the fighting had stopped before they came to do their checks. Around 20 minutes later, correctional officers came through for their routine checks, which, as a reminder, are supposed to be conducted every 30 minutes. It was at this time that correctional officers removed the unresponsive male from the cell. From the witness's point of view, the male appeared to be severely injured. He was apparently bleeding from his eye. The witness also caught a glimpse of the cell next to his, and there was reportedly a lot of blood throughout. Unfortunately, like so many of these cases, the Ministry of Justice will conduct their own investigation after police have finished theirs, and any findings, however, will not be made public. This is yet another tragic tale of inmate-on-inmate violence. I wish I could say my usual spiel about how Ronald Jack leaves behind people and that he was a good man beneath everything else, but without any context, I can't do that. What I can say is, rest in peace, Ronald Jack. Jamie Briggs was born March 9, 1978. By all accounts, he was a wonderful man who loved to have fun. He's described by many as a man with a huge heart and great smile. He had a lot of hobbies that showed he enjoyed living life to the fullest. He played hockey his entire life. He loved music, cars, motorcycles, and a good time. He also had a very large and loving group of family and friends, from nieces and nephews to aunts, uncles, cousins grandparents, two brothers, and a daughter named Kayla. He had a job, a loving and devoted partner, a home. How does a man like Jamie end up locked up? How does a man with everything going for him, a man so full of life, literally known for being larger than life, wind up in a cell at EMDC? The story is complicated and upsetting to say the least. Partner Melanie told the London Free Press of the circumstances that led to Jamie being arrested. It began as back pain. Jamie told his physician of this pain, who prescribed Jamie OxyContin. OxyContin, for those of you who don't know, is an opioid painkiller. Like so many others who are simply looking for a way to deal with pain, Jamie became addicted to the pills. He graduated from OxyContin to hydromorphone and finally to fentanyl. Fentanyl has been mentioned a lot on these episodes, but as a quick fact check, fentanyl is anywhere from 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. Many countries are in what's called an opioid crisis, which means people are dying with increasing frequency from overdose-related deaths when taking or abusing opioid medications. In Canada, roughly 9.7% of people prescribed opioid pain relievers actually end up abusing the drug. Jamie didn't start this because someone offered him a pill at a party. Jamie was legally prescribed medication for pain management and became an unfortunate statistic. Unfortunately, Jamie ended up losing his job in 2020 and realized he had an addiction problem. He wanted to get help. He wanted to stop abusing the drugs. To start, he'd cut back on his fentanyl use. This was a great start. 
but he would continue to suffer from paranoia, which is common in drug abuse. According to partner Melanie, Jamie would come up with unfounded accusations of her having affairs and also feared home invasions. In June of 2022, Jamie and Melanie had some kind of altercation, which resulted in Jamie throwing an empty cat food tin at her, breaking her cell phone, and pulling her onto a couch. Melanie was frightened by this behavior, so she left the home, but maintains that Jamie didn't hurt her at all. For this confrontational situation, Jamie was arrested by police and charged with two counts of assault and one count of mischief. I'm not 100% certain, but I believe Jamie might have had orders to stay away from Melanie at this point, which is why he ended up being arrested in July a month later for a break and enter charge. This charge was given to him because he'd spent the night in the house with Melanie and stayed there when she went to an appointment. This charge led him to spend a week at EMDC, a week that Jamie told Melanie was a very harrowing experience. Melanie recalls in a Lennon Free Press article that Jamie told to her that his time spent in EMDC was horrific. He had served time in a jail cell that was in quarantine with two other men in the same cell. He recalled to her that the cell was completely unhygienic, filthy with excrement smeared on ceilings and walls, spit, and so much more. He had likened the feeling of being in the cell to being a bunch of dogs thrown into a trench. It was completely inhumane. I can only imagine that Jamie would never want to be back in the jail based on how awful it was. When he was released after a week, Melanie and Jamie wanted to be together still. However, the issue with this is that there was a court-ordered condition that they stay apart based on the previous assault and mischief charges laid. They decided to ignore the court order and Jamie began staying with Melanie in their house. Unfortunately, Jamie seemed to be struggling with mental health, possibly due to his existing addiction issues in November of 2022. Melanie describes him as an quote, being in rough shape, talking nonsense to people who weren't there, taking anti-anxiety medication, but agitated and confused, end quote. On November 9th, Melanie heard a strange sound in another room and was shocked to open the door to see Jamie with a woman on top of him punching him. Jamie pushed the woman away and the woman reportedly ran out of the house, but just moments later, a man returned with her and broke into their home. Melanie recalls the assault that happened against Jamie. He was hit several times in the head by a metal stick and a wooden stick by the man and the woman. Apparently, although police were called and later shown home surveillance videos of the attack, they determined their investigation resulted in no charges because there weren't grounds to lay them. Obviously, I don't understand this because assault is assault, but I also don't have the ability to question police further on this, so I can't get more information as to why this was the case. Because the police had been called, and as mentioned, Melanie and Jamie had a no-contact order, Melanie quickly walked Jamie to a house a short walk away where he could stay while police came to investigate the break-in. But because surveillance videos showed that Jamie had been in the house, several hours later, police arrested him for violating the no-contact order. Jamie was taken to hospital due to injuries sustained from the violent assault. He received nine staples in his head. Immediately after he was medically treated for the wound, he was transported to EMDC. The family wants answers as to what happened to Jamie once he was behind bars. So far, what they have found out is as follows. When Jamie was at EMDC, he presented as being unwell. The jail arranged for him to go to a hospital in London for tests. The hospital discharged Jamie at midnight and he was put in a medical segregation cell back at EMDC. 
His bail hearing was scheduled for Thursday, November 10th, the day after he'd been arrested and put in the MDSC. He appeared at this bail hearing, and despite a head injury, he was otherwise healthy and interacting appropriately in court. In the following days, his lawyer and family attempted to contact EMDC to speak with Jamie multiple times. The problem, though, was that nobody could get through via phone. Jamie went the entire weekend without being able to speak to his family or his lawyer, and his family received no updates on his condition. In less than five days, Jamie would be dead. On Monday, November 14th, Jamie's lawyer was notified by EMDC that Jamie would not be showing up for a scheduled hearing because of health concerns. The lawyer was assured that due to these medical issues, Jamie would be receiving medical attention. On Tuesday, November 15th, Jamie's lawyer called EMDC and was told by correctional officers that Jamie wasn't able to come to the phone because he was suffering from withdrawal symptoms. The weekend after Jamie's initial court hearing saw him move from medical segregation back into a quarantine cell with two other inmates. On the evening of November 15th, Jamie was left alone in the cell with the other two inmates being removed. Jamie had apparently told staff at EMDC he was having pain in his stomach over a three-day period. However, he was reportedly unable to communicate anything else. He seemed agitated and confused he was only able to repeatedly indicate that he had a sore stomach. Wednesday, November 16th, would be the last day of Jamie's life. At around quarter to four in the morning, during standard checks by correctional officers, Jamie was found to be in medical distress. Jamie wasn't able to take proper breaths. Less than 10 minutes later, paramedics arrived and began to perform CPR, but it was too late. Jamie was pronounced dead at 4.15 a.m. on the morning of November 16th. According to initial reports by the coroner assigned to the case, the preliminary cause of death was a ruptured ulcer in his stomach that led to sepsis. This seems like natural causes, but one has to wonder what causes a ruptured ulcer. And if Jamie had been complaining of a sore stomach, what did medical professionals test for if he was truly taken to hospital? Sepsis doesn't occur immediately. I believe if Jamie was given appropriate medical care in a timely fashion, he could have survived. I don't have credentials at the end of my name, but I'm a hell of a researcher, and I found some medical journals indicating these types of deaths can take up to 30 days in otherwise healthy individuals. So why wasn't this issue addressed, and why wasn't he treated in hospital? Jamie was only 44 years old and was at EMDC for a week. Jamie's death marks the 21st death at EMDC since 2009. If Jamie's death was ruled as natural causes, there would not be a mandatory coroner's inquest into his death. I truly hope Jamie is resting in peace and that his family receives the closure they need about this horrific situation. Okay, squad, that's going to do it for this episode. Again, this is the last episode in the sub-series I've been doing called The Devil's Playground. I want to thank you for listening to these episodes. During the research and writing process, I went through a range of emotions, mostly sadness and anger. There were so many moments where I'd slam my laptop shut and say to my partner, get this, and then launch into a summary of the cases I'd be covering that week. I often drive by the jail on the way to my grandmother's as she lives very close to it and I visit her quite a lot. It's really changed for me, somehow made it more personal. 
Before, it was just a jail, a building where criminals go. Now I understand there is so much more to the story. These people are just humans. Maybe some of them have made mistakes, but they are humans nonetheless and deserve a little compassion and understanding. It's hard to believe that just steps away from a home I take my children, a home where we have summer pool parties and dance the nights away, the home of the matriarch of my family, there are people dying in a system that's supposed to protect them. They do have rights. Lawyer Kevin Egan has said it best in an article in the London Free Press, quote, every time to speak to the media about another death, it seems like we're just rolling the same film. It's the same issues time and time again, end quote. 21 people since 2009 have lost their lives in the EMDC. These deaths were determined to be the cause of assaults, drugs, or medical illnesses. A class action lawsuit initiated on behalf of the inmates and their families was approved by the Ontario Supreme Court Justice in September of 2023 and will award families or inmates who were incarcerated at EMDC over a specified period of time up to $35,000 depending on what category they fit into. The conditions at EMDC were ruled to be inhumane. Stay tuned for a bonus episode later this week where I address the lasting impact an inmate's death had on his daughter. Be sure to follow my social media. I have Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Also, be sure to follow the show, Crime Squad Podcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to comment on any of the inmates or if you have something you want me to share on behalf of a loved one who has experienced life at EMDC, feel free to reach out to me via direct message or via email at crimesquadpodcast at gmail.com. I will respond to you usually within a day. Thanks again for listening. Have a great couple weeks and always remember, stay safe and be kind to each other.